I'd invite your attention now as we turn to the Word of God to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9. Our scripture reading is going to be verses 30 through 37 this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, reading from the English Standard Version translation. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, again, even as uh, Stu has prayed, we would ask for your presence with the preaching of the word this morning. Uh, We pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one illuminating our minds and hearts, so that even as I speak, And we together as a congregation would hear, uh, your truth would prevail in every way. That you would guard the speaker and those spoken to this morning from falling into a misunderstanding of your word. Guard our hearts and minds so that we can be faithful to Jesus. Help us to understand what you would say to us. And we pray that this morning we, your servants, would be listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're coming really to the second part of this uh, sort of double episode uh, in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Christ. This is happening after the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus up on the mountain, uh, up towards Caesarea Philippi in the northern parts of the area that we call Palestine, at least north of Israel proper. And after having seen this great uh, vision of the Lord Jesus being glorified and seeing Moses and Elijah and hearing the voice of God speaking concerning Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Uh, Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain, just those three. And the remaining nine have been left back uh, on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And the situation is such that uh, they're in dispute with the scribes, their religious enemies, But at the same time, they have failed to help a father who had come to them and said, my son is demon-possessed, please can you you help him? The smitten father was really seeking Jesus, but he found his disciples and thought, well, if I don't have Jesus, then his disciples ought to be able to help me, and utter failure. So in the context here of the disciples having experienced what it was like to uh, be powerless to do any spiritual good apart from Christ, And having Jesus set in, and by the very things that Jesus does, uh, illustrate for them that 
if you are not in fellowship with me, if you're really not depending upon me, you're going to find yourself unable to do things spiritually. You're going to find yourself involved in fruitless argumentations. He then takes his disciples privately again, heading back toward Capernaum, his headquarter city, and he's going to teach them along the way uh, the most central thing that's yet to come in terms of his earthly ministry, pointing toward the end. The very things that Moses and Elijah had spoken to Jesus about upon the Mount of Transfiguration, this is now what Jesus is speaking to his disciples, that Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered, that is to be betrayed into the hands of men. He's going to be killed, and then the third day he's going to rise. Now, as we saw last week, the disciples hearing this were actually afraid to ask Jesus what was going on because they didn't understand this. And so we focused last week upon the reality that fear in the face of a spiritual non-understanding, if we don't understand something spiritually and we are afraid to ask, we are setting ourselves up seriously for spiritual failure. That God, in fact, wants us to pursue the things we don't understand spiritually. That's why, for instance, the Apostle Paul, one of his most important prayers for the church we find in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. So to re-emphasize the message of last week, let me just read these several verses. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, where Paul says, And so from the day we heard, meaning from the day that we heard about your faith, you Colossian Christians, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, notice, if God has inspired Paul to pray, then what Paul prays for is a word from God that says, you need this. And so what is Paul praying? That you would be filled with all spiritual knowledge and understanding of God's will. Where do you get that? You're not going to get it sitting by yourself and thinking sweet thoughts. You're not going to get it watching Benny Hinn on television. You're not going to get it by going anywhere other than the Word of God and sitting under the Word of God and reading the Word of God yourself and basically asking God, show me, show me, show me. Now, one caveat, one important principle. Real Christians read the Bible for themselves but never by themselves. Now, understand the distinction. A lot of people out there think they read the Bible for themselves and by themselves. Meaning, I don't care what anyone else says about the Bible. I'm reading it, and I'm going to interpret the way I understand it. That is hugely wrong. And let me tell you why. 
If you won't consult what godly men have said about the Word of God, you are spitting in the face of the Holy Spirit and what He has done through church history to bring godly men and their scholarship to bear upon what the Word of God says. If you read the Bible for yourself and then read the Bible by yourself, you are a heretic loner. And that's why we have so many problems in the church today. People will not listen to what other godly Christians have said and weigh it all and basically say, wow, there aren't many people out there who believe that we're supposed to baptize for the dead, are there, except the Mormon church. Understand, the Word of God is what you need, but you read it with the Holy Spirit working in you and you read it in the community and fellowship of other Christians. And that fellowship is not just Providence Reformed Church. That fellowship of other Christians stretches back 2,000 years. God has been at work in His church for 2,000 years to open up and to illuminate the Word of God. If we don't pay attention to what other Christians have said, and not all of them have said the right things. I mean, we have lots of differences with lots of Christian interpretations. But the point is, you don't go off by yourself and think that you're the Lone Ranger. Lone Rangers start cults. Lone Rangers start heresy. Lone Rangers have done the church no spiritual good. So that's why we read the Bible for ourselves and we read the Bible with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that's what Paul's talking about here. That's what real spiritual wisdom is. That's what really produces the fruit that we need in our lives as Christians. Now, going on to the main point of last week, which is also the big point of this week, is what do we learn from all of this? We learn that apart from Christ, apart from abiding in Christ, apart from abiding in His Word, we have no spiritual ability to do any good for ourselves or for others. We will find ourselves responding to the challenges of life with both fear and pride. And that's why it's so important that we abide in the Word of God, we abide in Christ, we abide in the fellowship with Christ, and then we seek to deal with our fear and our pride according to the Word of God so that we can be those who God can work through, both in terms of our own hearts and lives and in terms of the lives of others. So we come now to this passage. Uh, this passage where we can say there's a second silence going on. Now imagine this. Uh, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. They're getting close to Capernaum. And there's a little bit of distance that separates them. Because what's going to go on here is what takes place with the disciples, first of all, by themselves, once again, apart from Jesus. Now, in looking at this, we can say, make five or so important observations that are going to emphasize this truth, that we must keep Jesus central. We must keep Jesus central in everything we do. And keeping Jesus central means abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word, and abiding in the fellowship of His people. Now, the first observation. The apostles were having a discussion apart from Jesus. We see this in verse 33. Because when they finally get to Capernaum, back to the house, which was Jesus' headquarters for his ministry, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And so that means, in some sense, that they had drawn apart from Christ. Jesus was walking. They had just sort of drifted back. 
and now Jesus is asking them, what were you discussing among themselves? Now, <clears throat> I want us to ask about what happened here. The fact that the disciples drifted away from Christ even as they're walking back to Capernaum. And they get enmeshed in themselves. So here's several questions we should ask. Did not the disciples remember how they were spiritually crippled just a couple of days earlier when they tried to speak and they tried to act apart from Christ? I mean, that should have been vivid in their recent recollection. Uh, didn't they remember that they had no spiritual power or wisdom to deal with a demonically possessed boy? Uh, didn't they remember how the, the argument they got into with the scribes was spiritually fruitless? It didn't do anything for the kingdom of God? The point is, when we see... Several negative examples displayed in the lives of the disciples here. What we see is this, first of all. It is foolish for us to have discussions among ourselves as Christians in which we are not consciously in fellowship with Christ. Where we're not consciously seeking His presence and guidance in prayer. And, and if, if you are any much a Facebook, Christian group, blogosphere follower on the Internet, you have got to see again and again things going on between believers where you're thinking they can't both be in fellowship with Jesus right now. And it looks like neither of them happen to be because of the conduct and the way they treat one another and how they speak to one another online. Now, in this regard, let's consider Paul's command. Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. This is what Paul says to Timothy. And, of course, this applies to us. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. Coram Deo, presence of God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly in handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, this phrase, irreverent babble, refers to discussions which are clearly not sanctified by the presence of fellowship with Christ, clearly not sanctified by prayer. Uh, such discussions will always spiritually injure those who participate in them. So that's why Paul says, before God, in the presence of God, R.C. Sproul's favorite Latin motto, Coram Deo, in the presence of God, keep all things we talk about in the presence of God. Second observation. The discussion was an argument among themselves. It wasn't just a discussion. We see this, that it was a divisive kind of thing going on among the disciples. And this is ironic. Jesus was intent upon training the disciples to be leaders in the work of the kingdom of God. And th that mission, the kingdom of God, was to be their basis of unity. Uh, the kingdom good news 
was designed to put them on the same page. They were to be of one mind, united among themselves, especially since their own leader, Jesus, was the target of a unified spiritual and political uh, forces against him. They had every spiritual, every moral, every common sense reason for getting along with each other, for cooperating with each other, for working hard with each other to be on the same team, to put aside everything that would have been divisive, everything that would have separated them. Yet here they are, squabbling among themselves. You have the 12 disciples fighting and arguing no differently than the 12 sons of Jacob those ancient patriarchs were always doing with each other. And it's interesting because Jesus appointed these 12 as a symbolic representation of a new Israel. And here they are as a new Israel doing the same stuff that the old Israel did, which was, a, which was truly to their spiritual disaster. They're breaking their unity by divisive argument. The conduct that we see here is really captured by what the book of James says. In chapter 4, verse 1 and 4, James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? It's interesting, James calls this kind of fighting uh, really worldliness. It's friendship with the world. How does the world conduct itself? By a constant state of conflict, quarreling, and divisiveness. So not only apart from Christ do we get sidetracked into fruitless discussions about all sorts of matters that are not truly pertinent to the kingdom of God, but such discussions then often lead to quarrels, leads to fighting because of the sinful passions that war within us. What are we like apart from Jesus? Not much better than the world. A Christian out of fellowship with Jesus Christ is not a pretty sight to see. Third observation. This argument was over who was the greatest among them. Look at verse 34. Mark records the disciples had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, this was not about uh, showing who, who had the greatest potential. Uh, it was not about uh, proving who was going to be the greatest down the road. It was about who was the greatest among them right then. Just a couple of days after, these disciples were unable to help a man who had a great spiritual need. Just a couple of days after, these men were involved in a spiritually fruitless argument with the scribes. Here they are arguing. Who's the greatest among us? And I'm thinking, well, it would have made sense if they were arguing who was the greatest idiot among them. Well, all of us are like that, apart from Jesus. All of us are like that. What we see in the disciples is the incredible eruption of human pride. Each of the disciples was involved in overestimating his own abilities and significance to the kingdom of God. Again, as we mentioned last week, what does Scripture say about the dangers of pride? 
Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Pride keeps us from learning. Pride keeps us from admitting our mistakes. Pride keeps us from seeing ourselves with any kind of true clarity. So the disciples' failure here is, again, a kind of warning to us. Paul gives the proper perspective. Uh, Stu read this earlier, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Only when we are in fellowship with Christ will we have this kind of sober judgment. Fourth observation, the silence of guilt. Again, verse 34, Mark records, Jesus is asking them, Mark records, they kept silent. They, they didn't want to acknowledge to Jesus what they had boasted about, what they had argued about with each other. They were boasting about, of course, their own greatness. So when we are apart from Jesus, we are not only willing to toot our own horns, but we're willing to lock horns with others while we're doing it. That's the example we see in the disciples. But in the presence of Jesus, verse 33, let's note this. Jesus kept asking. The Greek there is not just simply Jesus asked, but it's an imperfect tense that involves the idea that Jesus kept asking them, what were you discussing? And the same tense applies to their response. They kept being silent. Guilt made them cowards. Guilt made them ashamed before Christ. They were silent out of shame and embarrassment over their behavior. They were silent because they had been caught in this incredible act of pride. They were ashamed. And in their shame, they stayed in their pride. Now, what an irony and a contrast here. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the ultimate mission of his life, that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer many things, and he's going to be killed before he rises from the dead. Well, they're discussing who already has first place in the kingdom. They're not getting it. They're not seeing it. And again, apart from Christ, we're so prone to pride that we can't hear what God is saying clearly in his word. Now, in the Old Testament, David tells us the consequences of what happens when we can't see our sin or when our sin has been exposed to us, we're unwilling to deal with our sin. Psalm 32.3, New American Standard, is one of the best translations here. It supplies some words that are implied in the Hebrew. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, when we won't admit our sin to Christ because of the shame that is really a form of pride, self-protectiveness, when we won't do that, David is saying, well, nevertheless, God does have his ways of breaking us down. 
God does have his ways of making us feel the burden of the sin that we won't confess. It's better to face up to these things quickly with the Lord Jesus and to restore fellowship. Now, the fifth observation has to do with being confronted by Christ. We, we see the character of the confrontation here, verses 35 to 37. And the character of how Jesus confronts his disciples, clearly, when we see what the Apostle Paul says, clearly sets the pattern, not only for Christian leaders, but for all Christians and their dealings with one another. So verse 35 to 37, Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the middle of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So consider the characteristics of what Jesus does here. How he confronts the sin in his disciples. The first thing to note, there is an incredible calm patience on the part of Christ in his confrontation. There's not a rushed or, or, or rash response to what Jesus knows is going on. First he sits down. Then he calls his disciples together while they're inside the house. Now, this sitting down was his customary signal that he was going to teach because more times than ever in the ministry of Christ, he teaches from a sitting position. As an aside, I wonder why we have a pulpit rather than a chair. <laughs> that Jesus taught from that position of seating, and he calls his disciples to himself, and then note how he confronts them because this provides an example for us. We almost always think about confrontation in an adversarial kind of way. We think when we confront somebody, they're going to see us as an adversary. When we confront someone about whatever they're doing that's not right, when we confront someone, they're going to look at us and they're going to think there's some hostility thing going on here. It's a very combative kind of thing within our culture and the way most people understand that. But that's not Jesus, and that's not the model we find of, of Christian leadership and fellowship in the Bible. Confronting and correcting biblically is never to be done with, 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 um, among ourselves with a spirit of anger or aggression. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24-26. He says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, this is the same word that we find in the, in the passage that uh, Mark is talking about. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And that word means combative or to clash severely. But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul understood how Jesus modeled confrontation with his disciples. Patience, kindness, in the manner in which he then instructed. 
And that's the second point. The confrontation is instructional. The intent is for the person being confronted to learn. Jesus sets forth this principle of kingdom greatness as the point that the disciples need to learn. In other words, he uses their sin of prideful ambition, self-aggrandizement, who's going to be the greatest, and he essentially says this, kingdom truth cancels all of the worldly ideas about self-aggrandizement, self-glory, self-advancement, self-promotion. Kingdom greatness is to be described this way. If anyone would be first, he must be servant and last of all. He must be last of all and servant of all. Now, if you think about it, this turns all of the world's ideas about greatness upside down. It is so incredibly evident in our culture today how people think highly of themselves and in thinking highly of themselves they believe it's perfectly proper to toot their own horns they think it's the right thing to do I've heard it said a thousand times I think that well if I don't promote myself who else is going to do it if I don't stand up for myself who else is going to do it if I don't tell them how good I am who else is going to do it we hear this kind of thing again and again and again Our culture approves pride. Our culture endorses pride. Our culture endorses people telling everybody in every way they can how great they happen to be. And we start this, of course, when they're little kids. My son, secretly I know you're a lousy soccer player, but you get a great trophy. Everybody gets a trophy. You showed up. You're great. You had a losing season, but you're still the greatest team around. We, we do this again and again and again. And, of course, all of that doesn't make any sense. But the problem is not that it doesn't make any sense, not that it's a false statement of reality. It's a false idea about greatness. Jesus says greatness is not found in you being on top. Jesus says greatness is found in your willingness to serve other human beings and even those who are the least. And so what Jesus does, really, in his own life, exemplifies this. Paul captures it this way, Philippians 2. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus made himself servant of all. Now that's the lesson of what greatness is in the kingdom, becoming a servant of all. Now the last thing that Jesus does is he illustrates this. He illustrates his teaching in terms of a very practical application. He takes a child. Now, we need to appreciate that not only in the Greco-Roman world, but in the Jewish world of this day, When you looked at the ladder of of social eminence, who's at the top, who's at the bottom? Children were actually at the bottom, even in the Jewish culture. Evidently clear in the Greco-Roman culture where they uh, abandoned babies that they didn't want, threw them into rivers, left them in the woods, um, treated children uh, terribly. But in the Jewish culture itself, children 
were not, according to the Old Testament, uh, which says children are a fruit, uh, children are a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is his reward. That was not the governing ethic about children in the day of Jesus. It wasn't even children are to be seen and not heard. It's children really shouldn't be a bother or they need to be kept out of the main things and the main business. They were at the lowest rung of those considered important. That's why Jesus takes this child, puts him in the center, in front of all the disciples, and you notice Jesus holds him in his arms. The picture... The drama of what Jesus is doing here is saying everything. That if you want to be great, then you need to consider those who are least and you need to embrace them with the love and grace of the gospel. You need to serve them. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Christ is telling us kingdom greatness is found in service to all. But most significantly and most particularly, it is found in the service and to serve those that society and the world considers the least. To serve the least is the calling of to greatness. Now, as we conclude, let's recognize this. Did the disciples understand this at this time? No. When we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that Jesus has to hammer the same lesson again about what real greatness happens to be. It wasn't until after Pentecost, after Jesus had risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes down upon the church and baptizes the church on the day of Pentecost, when they really begin to understand the full dimensions and dynamics of the kingdom and the greatest testimony to the fact that they understood this is found in how the great reputation of the early church was that they rescued children, discarded children who were thrown into rivers to die and raised them as their own. They rescued discarded children who were, who were abandoned in the woods for the wolves to kill and took them and adopted them and raised them as their own. They found the deformed children that had been left out and abandoned and they took them and erased them as their own. They took the least in, in culture, the least of society, and they took them and served them and raised them as their own. And then on the next two low rungs of the latter society, In the Greco-Roman world, were slaves and women. And the apostolic preaching was this. In Christ, you are all sons, all sons of God through faith. For in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but all one in Christ. The gospel moves us to be servants. It moves us to be servants of one another and servants of those who are least. But you're no gospel good at all apart from a living, abiding fellowship with Jesus in his word and through prayer. 
to keep us responding to the challenges of life in a manner that does not demonstrate fear or pride, we must stay strong in our fellowship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, this we do pray as we pray to be made like Jesus, that we would have the heart of Jesus and pursue kingdom greatness, which means being servants of all. And we would pray, Father, that we would remember that apart from Christ, apart from fellowship with Christ, the discussions we have, the actions we do, are going to be mostly of no kingdom good. And so we pray, keep us in your word, keep us in prayer, keep us in fellowship with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.